We've been doing a series called More Than a Story, looking at these Old Testament stories, looking for Jesus in the midst of the stories. The the crazy thing is we haven't even made it a third of the way through the Old Testament, and we skipped so many. So I think next summer we may may end up doing More Than a Story Part 2 and go back and find 10 more because of how foundational they are. The book of Esther is one of two books in the entire Bible that does not mention the name of God. Esther's one of the books, the Song of Solomon is the other book. And even though the name of God is conspicuously absent, if you read Esther, the fingerprints of God are absolutely unmistakable. It's a sweeping epic of courage and faith and God's hand. And the story basically revolves around four characters. Let me introduce them to you. The first character is King Xerxes, actual historical figure who was the king of Persia from 486 to 465 BC. He's the son of King Darius, who we talked about last weekend when we were talking about Daniel in the lion's den. So there's Xerxes. Then we've got the hero of the story. Her name is Esther. Esther is a Jewish orphan. She's also referred to as Hadassah, depending on how your Bible is written. And so we meet Esther and she's going to be kind of the, the central figure. She's being raised by a man whose name is Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, but he basically raised Esther as his own daughter. And we're going to unpack that. So he's a father by choice. He's brought in this orphan and he's raising her just like he would his own daughter. And then, of course, every good story needs a villain. So we have a guy by the name of Haman, who was one of King Xerxes' highest officials. And we're going to learn to not like him at all over the next 27 minutes or so. Okay? Now, my prayer is every week is that... I will just whet your appetite to scripture enough that you'll want to go home and open up your Bible to find out whether or not the preacher was lying to you or not, okay? So I want you to go home and read it for yourself, but I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. So here's the storyline, okay? The curtain opens and we're taken to a backdrop of the ancient civilization of Persia, okay? So think back to your high school history class, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Get a picture in your mind of the vast wealth of ancient civilizations. This particular empire is controlled by a king named Xerxes. Xerxes, that was good, yeah. Well, we're going to get there in a minute, okay? And when we join the party of this story, we literally join a party. Because the Bible says King Xerxes throws a six-month party just to show off, okay? That's some party for six months. For half a year, the king of this empire puts the excess of his kingdom on display, okay? Six months long, that is some kager, all right? I mean, that's an amazing thing. For those of you who don't know what that is, ask somebody under 18 and they'll educate you. Okay, so at the end of the six months... The king hosts a week-long banquet, and this is what he tells his servants, okay? I'm not advocating this position. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He tells his servants to let everybody drink as much as they want. Once again, not advocating that position. In fact, going to try and steer you in a different direction. Then the Bible goes on and says, when the king himself was, and I quote, in high spirits from wine, okay? This has got a bit of a buzz on, okay? He gets a brilliant idea and he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, into the middle of this raging party. And his purpose is he wants her to display her beauty. Basically, he wants to show her off like a trophy. Okay? This is where the story gets interesting. Because Queen Vashti refuses to come. And King Xerxes strips her of her royalty. Okay? Now, husbands, be very, very careful where your sinful brain is taking you right now. Okay? 
Just be really, really careful because I want to remind you, Xerxes is a pagan king with a gigantic ego who's not following God, who's made a decision to surround himself with a group of friends who like to pump up his ego and reinforce his definition of a man, which is that a real man is somebody who can hold his liquor and intimidate his wife. I want to reinforce with you, he's a pagan man who does not know the God that calls husbands to honor and love their wives and lay down their lives for them. We should do a marriage series out of Esther. It's awesome. Okay. So this is my opinion. When you throw a six months kegger and you get those guys surrounding you, you're not a role model for what kind of a man you're supposed to be. You're actually an idiot. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. So the queen Vashti doesn't want to walk into a room filled with idiots who've been on a six month bender because she's a smart, intelligent woman. Okay. So she stands up for herself, and because of that, she's stripped of her royal role. She's no longer the queen. So the Bible tells us King Xerxes begins the search for a new queen. While the search begins in earnest, the curtain closes on Act 1. And after a brief intermission, the curtain opens again, and we're back in Persia, but we're not at the palace anymore. Now we're just in regular, ordinary village with common people doing everyday life. And this is where we meet Mordecai. I love this guy. Mordecai is a godly Jewish man who's been raising his cousin Esther as his own daughter. Okay? Esther, also known as Hadassah, is an orphan. So here's what we know. She lost her parents somewhere along the way. And this godly man brings in his cousin and raises her like his own precious daughter. There's no politically correct way to say this. So I'm just going to say it straight out. Esther's gorgeous. She walks down a road and the guys are all doing double takes. The Bible says she's beautiful. Her name means hidden star. And that's going to become very important as the story begins to unfold. Because the king is out looking for a beautiful queen. And the Bible talks about a beauty pageant that happens. And out of dozens, maybe hundreds of other women who are brought before Xerxes, it's Esther that captures his attention because he's a guy. She's gorgeous. He's like, who is that? Bring her here. I want to have an opportunity to get to know her. To make a long story short, Esther becomes queen. I mean, it's better than Cinderella, you know? It's a great story. There's a regular girl, she becomes royalty, and they all live happily ever after. Praise God, thank you, Jesus. We can all go home early on the Labor Day weekend. Not even close, okay? Because here comes the political intrigue, all right? Remember Mordecai who raised Esther? Well, one day Mordecai's sitting at the city gate and he overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes, okay? And Mordecai's a solid, system, uh, a solid citizen. He's a community leader. So he tells Esther, the girl that he raised, who's now the queen of Persia, she informs the royal court and the plot is uncovered. King Xerxes is saved and Mordecai becomes a hero simply because he's a man of conviction who did what he was supposed to do. And into the swirl of this drama comes the villain of the story, a guy by the name of Haman. King Xerxes actually liked Haman, okay? He liked him so much, he sent out an edict to the entire Persian empire. So whenever Haman comes by you, you need to bow down in front of him because I consider him to be royalty. Haman's an ego-driven corporate ladder climber. He's just one of those slimy guys who will crawl right over top of your back to get whatever it is that he wants. We have all met a Haman, haven't we? 
I mean, every company seems to have one. He's a slimy, slippery guy. He'll drive you nuts if you have any integrity at all. He'll take ideas that other people put forward. He'll claim them as his own. I mean, he'll do anything just to get up that ladder. Some of you, you have a face in your brain right now from somebody that you work with. Be very careful you don't sin in church, okay? Just watch that, all right? Well, even though Xerxes told everybody to bow down to Haman, there's one guy who won't bow down when he walks by, Mordecai. Apparently, he's been taking some lessons from some guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Mordecai won't bow down. And Haman is angry. He wants to destroy Mordecai. The Bible says somewhere along the line, Haman has learned that Mordecai is a Jew. And so he makes the decision, why just kill Mordecai? I should just wipe out all of them. Because he knows his history. He's like, the Jewish people just seem to be a thorn in the side of authority. Like every time we turn around, they're causing problems. Did it with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I mean, these guys are just driving us crazy. So Haman unleashes a plot to have all of the Jews destroyed. There's a Jewish community living in Persia and as history is repeated over and over and over again, the people of God become a target. Do you know why the Jewish people are always a target? It's because they're the chosen people of God. That's why. And it still goes on today. Don't believe me? Open up your newspaper and every time you see the word Israel, you'll see that the chosen people of God still have a target painted on them. Here's the kicker. I want to remind you of something. Esther's Jewish. She's a Jewish girl. Do you remember the meaning of her name? It's hidden star. To this day, have you seen the nation of Israel symbol? It's the star of David. Well, in God's providence, even though we don't hear his name, Esther has been slipped as a hidden star into the middle of the Persian empire. Now, Her Jewish heritage was something that Esther didn't mention to the king before they got married. In fact, Mordecai kind of cautioned her not to. He's like, I don't think you should share that little tidbit. This may not go very well for you. Now, at this moment, some of you are judging Esther, but I want to encourage you. You probably, when you got married, were not completely forthcoming to the person that you were engaged to because you know if you would have done that, you would not be married today, right? Right? So Esther doesn't say anything. And Haman continues to unleash his plot and the people of God are in trouble and because the Jewish people are in trouble, so is Esther. They're threatened with genocide. So Mordecai shows up, talks with the queen, the little girl that, she ma- that, 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 that he raised and suddenly she's the key that could save the Jewish community from extinction and the tension begins to rise because we start asking questions. Is, is, is Esther gonna turn her back on her people? Is she going to stand firm? Is she going to be courageous? Is she just going to suddenly convert to being Persian? What's going to happen? You got to remember, the Jewish people are killed and Esther is found out. Her life is in danger as well. So this is what she does. She calls on her people to pray and fast. She goes to God, the unmentioned one in the story, and she asks for courage. And this is what happens next. Esther risks her life to approach the king. Now, this is no small task. You see, this is how it worked back then. You didn't just show up and approach the king of Persia. You didn't book an appointment or knock or talk to his assistant and say, I need to talk with the king for a couple minutes. It just didn't work that way. In fact, if you approached the king of Persia without permission, he killed you just to show that he could. 
You know, you knocked on the door, walk in, you're dead. It's the way he kept his calendar nice and clear, okay? That's how it worked for him. And Esther knows if I'm not summoned into the presence of the king, I can't just show up and tell him what's going on with my people. So Esther's smart. She remembers there was something about her that made the king look twice once. Maybe she should go with that plan again. So the Bible says she actually does. She, I don't know how to put this nicely. She, she does herself up, okay? She gets all ready. And then she literally goes and just stands kind of just, just around the corner of the back of the palace and she just kind of hangs out there. <laughs> right? And once again, the king said, well, that's my wife. Bring her here. Hey, sweetie, uh, come here, come here, come here. So Esther walks in, okay? While that's going on, let's switch scenes, okay? While the king is just being a guy, okay? There's a clash between ego and humility going on. Haman's trying to continue his plot, but Mordecai has just become an ever-increasing thorn in his side. So Haman begins another plot to not only wipe out the Jews, but to actually make Mordecai the target. So he begins another plot to kill Mordecai on a 75-foot gallows. You know what those are? Like, that's where you hang people, right? 75 feet high. He's like, that's for Mordecai. He has an instrument of death erected, knowing that one day he's going to string up Mordecai. Let's switch scenes. Go back to the palace, okay? Esther's gained entrance into the presence of the king, but she hasn't asked for anything yet. In fact, she's there with her husband, and, and she doesn't actually ask him for anything, and comes nightfall and they're getting ready to go to bed and the king can't sleep. He just can't sleep that night. You know, I guess insomnia was a part of life back then too. And so he does what a lot of us do when we can't sleep. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I can't sleep, I usually go to the living room, I watch Sports Center until I can't watch it anymore. And if that fails, I read a book. Just hoping that something will kind of lull me into some kind of sleep. Well, that's exactly what the king does. The Bible says he goes and actually gets a book full of court records. I mean, that'll bore anybody, right? And he just starts flipping through these legal documents, hoping that something will be so boring that knock him out. Well, as he's reading these legal documents, we see the fingerprints of God start working because he runs across a journal entry that talks about an assassination plot that was thwarted by a godly Jewish man named Mordecai. Because the king can't sleep. He's like, oh, nobody else is going to sleep either, right? You know, if the king's awake, everybody else needs to be awake. So he calls his advisors together, one of whom is Haman. And he says, guys, I got a question for you. What should we do for somebody who serves the king super, super well? And Haman's got such a huge ego. He actually thinks the king's talking about him. So he's like, I know what we should do. We need to get this guy a royal robe and put him on a horse and like set up a parade and walk him back and forth through the village so everybody can cheer and clap for him. And the king's like, that's an awesome idea. That's exactly what we should do. And that's what I want you to do for this guy who saved my life. His name is Mordecai. <laughs> Haman's the horse boy. Get the picture, right? Walking around with a guy who will not bow, saying everybody's supposed to pay attention to him. Talk about a kick in the ego, right? King Xerxes remembers how Mordecai saved his life, and he honors him by having Haman parade him through town like royalty. Let's switch scenes again, okay? 
Back to the palace. The queen has the king's attention and he has one of those moments. Like, you know, anything you want, sweetie. Just name it. I'll get it for you. So she says, okay, that's what I want. I want two banquets with three guests. Me, you, and Haman. So the king says, okay. So they have a banquet with the three of them. First banquet. I'm sure Haman is just like, this is awesome. Just me and the king and the queen. This is what a great trio, right? This is fantastic. And then there's a second banquet. And he gets invited back again. Only this time, Esther stands up halfway through dinner and says, King Xerxes, I'm Jewish. And I'm your wife. And my people are being threatened with the plot of genocide. And I will not stand quietly by any longer. And if you need to know who's masterminding this plot and making my life miserable, it's that guy, Haman. And Esther asked the king to spare her people from Haman's plot. And the king goes into a rage. That's what the Bible says. He goes into a rage. He's angry. I mean, how dare somebody hurt his wife? Husbands, that's a clue. When your wife hurts, you should be hurting too, okay? And then the king pulls a guy move. He storms off, right? He's got to clear his head, figure something out. And Haman all of a sudden realizes, man, the jig is up. This is not good for me. He realizes he's been uncovered. He's been exposed So he starts trying to do damage control. He pleads with Esther, you need to save my life. In fact, he actually walks over, grabs a hold of her dress. That's what the Bible says. And as he grabs a hold of her dress and pleads for his life, the king comes walking back in. Like, are you kidding me? Now you're making a move on my girl? You were already dead once, now you're twice dead. Like, I'm gonna kill you twice just for fun. Read it in your Bible. Okay? Haman's exposed as the mastermind of the genocide plot, and this is what happens. The king orders Haman hung on his own gallows, the ones he made for Mordecai, yeah, for attempting to kill Esther's people. And we look at that story and we go, oh, that's just poetic justice. You know, it's hard to understand, but we see God's sovereign hand exacting justice. And the final curtain closes on the story of Esther with this conclusion. The people of Israel are saved through the courage of Esther, who was chosen, and this is the famous phrase from the book, for such a time as this. It's a beautiful story. God's hand resting on a surrendered life, and the result is an entire nation is saved. One person who stands with courage, It makes a difference. And Esther, she's so inspiring, right? She's an inspiring hero whose courage is used by God to accomplish his purpose. I mean, I just love this story. But some of you are like, what does this have to do with me? I mean, all the guys in the room are like, I get, there's a gender thing. I don't know. Where do I fit in the story? I mean, I get Mordecai's part, but Esther, and she's courageous, and she's awesome. But How does this story apply to my life? Well, let's make this super personal, okay? Let's fast forward 2,500 years and go from Persia to Everson, Washington. Same God, 
different drama, different characters. Before I came to Christ the King, I was a youth pastor at another church in the county. In 1998, I was invited to speak at a baccalaureate service for Nooksack Valley High School. And when I got there, I noticed on the program that I wasn't the only pastor that was speaking. In fact, they introduced me to a guy. He walked over. He was kind of a big guy, really long ponytail coming out of the back of his head. And he put out his hand and he goes, hi, I'm Bob from Cornwall Church. And I said, hi, I'm Grant, Nooksack Valley Baptist. Nice to meet you. And there was just like an instant connection. Just kind of all of a sudden, we were just friends, just the way it worked. And we both finished our little talks and shook hands and took off and kind of stayed in contact, just semi-contact, like, hey, how are you doing, that kind of a thing. And one year later, my world had been turned completely upside down. I was unemployed. I needed a job. I'd been a youth pastor in two churches for over 10 years. It was all I knew, but I was wrecked. Wounded, hurt, beat up. I had a run-in with God's girlfriend, and I loved Jesus, but I just didn't like his people very much. And I was a mess. But I needed a job. A friend of mine, his name is Mark. He still attends Christ the King Church on Saturday nights. He gave me a mercy job, working construction. Me and a hammer, that's not a good combination, okay? (laughs) But I was doing my best to try and feed my family, and one day the phone rang, and it was the one with the ponytail was Bob. And Bob said, hey, look, Cornwall's looking for a youth pastor. And Laurel and I, at the time, had actually, we'd just been kind of slipping in and out of a couple of different churches. We just wanted to hide in the back row. I didn't really want to go to church, but I had a lot of Baptist guilt, so I needed to show up somewhere, keep God happy. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? And Bob had seen a couple, me a couple of times. He said, look, you know, we, we need a pastor. You are one. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you don't want me, dude. I'm a mess. God and I are not on great terms right now. He's like, well, what do you got to lose? Why don't you come and meet with our leadership team? And so we did. We kind of went through a little, you know, very relaxed process. And Bob actually offered me a job. So why don't you come and be our youth pastor? And on the surface, it looked so perfect. I needed a job. They needed a youth pastor. I mean, it seemed to make such perfect sense. But we asked for some time to pray, and Laurel and I prayed, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. There was no peace at all. And a week later, Bob called out looking for my answer. And I remember telling him, I'm like, I have no idea why I'm saying no. It doesn't make any sense at all. But I'm saying no. And believe me, I had argued with God. I'm like, God, I need this job. He's like, no. I'm like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? And I remember Bob, he told me, he goes, I'm really disappointed, man. And I'm like, I'm disappointed too. I, I, I don't get it. But we stayed friends, stayed in contact. About three months later, I stumbled into Christ the King. I did not walk into this church. I crawled because I was still broken, beat up, wounded. But I figured, I mean, all I've ever known is being a pastor, so I'll just try, right? Bob and I remained friends, and 
I was the college pastor here for a couple of years. Then I became the young married young family pastor. And two and a half years after this whole thing had played out, I found out on a Tuesday that I was going to be taking over as the lead pastor on a Thursday. And Sunday was Easter. Some of you remember. And if you don't remember, I'm going to tell the story next weekend, okay? The next Monday, I came to work. I had no idea if anybody was going to stick with us. I was scared to death. And I'm sitting in, a, in an office on a Monday morning after Easter, freaking out. And my phone rings. And you'll never guess who was on the other end. Bob. And I remember him saying, I think you're probably going to need a friend. Want to get together for coffee? I'm like, I'd love to. So we met at Starbucks. And I remember the very first thing that came out of Bob's mouth. He said, so now we know why the answer was no. Now we get it. Didn't make any sense at the time. And our friendship and our brotherhood was forged. And we still have that brotherhood today. I'll tell you something. This is one thing you don't get to do at Christ the King Church. You never get to talk smack about Cornwall. Because they are not competition. They are family. Their pastor is one of my closest friends. And if you tangle with Bob, I will throw down with you. And I played hockey, so that should tell you something, okay? You know? And God just did something about just unifying a body in Whatcom County using a couple of messed up guys. I had a mullet at that time, so we went really well together, okay? So, and from those days, I learned some valuable lessons. Let me give you four of them really, really quick, okay? Number one, I learned that the sovereign hand of God is always moving. Sovereign means supreme power and authority. It means that God has supreme rank, power, and authority all of the time. It's indisputable, which means at all times, in all circumstances, even in the painful ones of your life, God is still working. He's often unseen, he's often unnamed, and yet he's an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient God, and he's always moving. Even when I sin, he's still moving. Through my consequences, he's moving. Through my triumphs and failures, God is always working to accomplish his perfect purpose to the praise of his glorious grace. His timing is impeccable, which means whenever I break something, he can put it back together again. His hand never stops moving. He's always redeeming, correcting, directing, changing, drawing, using all things to accomplish his perfect will. And it's so easy for us to read the story of Esther and forget this simple fact. She had no idea what was going on. She couldn't figure out what was coming in Monday any more than any of us can figure out what's coming this Monday or Tuesday. She was just doing what she was supposed to do. She was being faithful in the present moment, even though she was faced with, I mean, going from being an orphan to the queen. That's a big transition. And then she's threatened with murder and genocide and prejudice. And yet she just keeps moving underneath of the hand of a sovereign God who even when we don't understand what's going on, understands perfectly what's happening. He gets every single detail. Do we get that? Here's another lesson I learned from Esther, that a surrendered life can move underneath of that sovereign hand. And this is how you know if you're underneath the hand of God. If you're obedient, you're under. If you're not, you're not. It's as simple as that. 
When I'm obedient to his call, I'm under the hand of a sovereign God. And I've learned something. When you're underneath of that sovereign hand, it's a place of peace and safety. I've also learned this. When I step out from underneath of it, it's not a place of peace and safety. It's a place of hardship, difficulty. I've also learned this. When you step out from under the hand of God, this thumb will come and start to press down on top of you because the God who owns it loves you so much he can't stand to be disconnected from you even when you're living in outright rebellion. How many of you have ever been over here? The rest of you who said no are lying and this is happening to you right now. Okay? The hand of God is beautiful to the surrendered and it's heavy to the disobedient. And Esther just stays underneath of the covering and wherever it moves, she moves with it. And some of us are going to make decisions this week. You're going to make a decision. I don't know why the government needs my money. I'm going to decide to do my taxes my own way with some creative accounting. And you're going to drift and God's going to love you so much this is going to happen. Some of you college students, you're going back to school and you're in relationships right now and you're creating yourself as the grand exception so that you can color outside of the lines that God has established for you with regards to sexuality and purity and you're going to make the decision and you're going to step out and God's thumb is going to come and rest on you and he will bend you until you come back underneath of that sovereign hand of God and find the place of grace, mercy, forgiveness. Esther stays under the hand and that's where she finds rest and courage for her soul. Here's something else I learned. I learned that God's plan is often revealed in hindsight. I mean, I want you to just think about Esther's life just for a second, right? From an orphan to a queen, from a queen to threatened with murder and the genocide of her entire nation. I mean, it's just a roller coaster of pain and loss, up and down, triumph and failure, Monday and Tuesday. I got it right, I got it wrong. I mean, that's the roller coaster she's on. Does that sound familiar to anybody else in the room that's human? Up and the down. The Bible doesn't say she asked these questions, but she's human. I can hear her saying, where's where's God in this? What's his plan? They're going to try and kill us. And it just teaches us again and again, I cannot often see the hand and the plan of God when I'm in the middle of life's overwhelming challenges. But if I remain faithful and surrendered in his good time, I get to turn around and I see his fingerprints as he opened and closed doors, as he guided me back onto a path when I stepped off, when he covered me when I was in so much pain, I didn't know where to go, where in those moments when I lost all of my strength and his hand was underneath of me, carrying me through circumstances that I didn't even think I could survive. Maybe you've had one of those moments like 20 years out, you turn around and you look back over the faithfulness of God and you go, oh, okay, that's where it was. Boy, I didn't see it in the hospital room that day. But now I see fingerprints everywhere. I didn't see it when God said no, but now I look back and I go, oh, that was a gift. He protected me. He watched me, carried me. Even in moments when we've strayed and wandered away, 
we look back and we see the fingerprints of God as he used this person to call us back. And the prayers of that grandma and the phone call from that mom and that brother who showed up in our driveway and said, you're going the wrong direction. And we see the fingerprints of God directing and guiding. One more, then we gotta wrap up. I think this is a great lesson from Esther. We're called to live by courage, foresight, and faith. You know, Esther's whole life was purposed by God for that little phrase, for such a time as this. And my prayer today is that the same God who called Esther is calling all of us to surrender and follow because you've all been called for such a time as this. For some of you, your time will be tomorrow afternoon at a family picnic when you're going to have to stand up and admit before everybody that you're a Jesus freak, that you're a Bible thumper, that you got religion, and that you're no longer going to be a hidden star, but that you're going to stand for Jesus because he stood for you. Some of you are going to go to work on Tuesday, and your moment of such a time as this is going to be, you're going to have to face down Haman. And you're going to have to say, that's wrong, and this is right. And if I have to lose my job in order to stand for what God would have me stand for, so be it. I will choose unemployment over bowing my knee to you and your lack of integrity. Esther went so far as to say, if I perish, I perish. For some of us, we need to say, if I'm unemployed, then I'm unemployed. But the sovereign hand of God will carry me. I don't know what your moment is, but I'll promise you something. If you're alive and breathing, your moment's coming. And I hope and pray you'll have the courage of a little Jewish orphan who was surrendered and covered by the sovereign hand of God and because of her courage and submission saved an entire nation. I think this country could use a few more Esthers. Stand up and be counted. Would you pray with me today as we close? God, thank you for this day and this gorgeous Labor Day weekend. Thank you for those who chose to come inside today and bless them. Bless them in Jesus' name. Lord, for those who know nothing about being under the sovereign hand of God, I pray that they would know that not only is it a place of peace and safety, it's also a place of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. I pray courage over my brothers and sisters as they have there for such a time as this moment. May they stand boldly in Jesus' name. And Lord, now as we continue in our worship and give back to God, the God of Esther, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Moses, Noah, Adam and Eve, and all the rest of them. May we see that it's the same God and that it's so much more than just a story. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.